Good morning and welcome to Guts and Glory, the Singapore General Hospital Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm Dylan. And I'm Ching Han. Uh, I'm Andrew, uh, one of the gastroenterologists uh, in Singapore General Hospital. And I'm pleased that you listeners are able to join us today in our podcast where we provide in-depth practical discussion with local experts from our hospital. Uh, and today we have a, a, another special guest with us today um, and we'll introduce him soon. But before that, I would just like to, to ask Ching Han, um, our topic today is on inflammatory bowel disease, uh, specifically the management of it. What's your experience in handling patients with IBD? Um, actually, to be honest, I think a lot of us don't really have a lot of experience managing IBD patients because they are not uh, very commonly seen on the wards. So a lot of what we learn is theoretical and also patients that we see when we study for uh, MRCP. But on the wards itself, we have managed patients who are uh, admitted electively for infusions uh, if they require some biologic treatment. But other than that, actually, we don't really have a lot of experience managing IBD. Right. So I think, Ching-Han, I think you rightfully pointed out um, a very common problem with uh, a lot of residents who are dealing with patients that are uh, having subspecialized diagnosis like inflammatory bowel disease. So I think our, our guest today is going to enlighten us a lot about what it takes to actually treat some of these IBD patients. So Ching-Han, can you just uh, tell us who do we have with us today and where does he come from? Today, we have with us Dr. Weber Chan. He is a senior consultant gastroenterologist and the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Services at Singapore General Hospital. Dr. Chan graduated from the University of Hong Kong before he completed his general physician and advanced gastroenterology training at Singapore General Hospital. He completed his advanced fellowship in training in inflammatory bowel disease at Concord Repatriation General Hospital in Sydney where he learned various aspects of management of IBD and assisted in setting up the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation Service in Concord Hospital. Okay, so Weber, I just want to ask you some questions. Uh, as, as Ching-Han mentioned, you're the director of the IBD service in the SGH. So there, there, has, there is this uh, thinking that uh, IBD is a Western disease. And so do we really have that many IBD patients? Because it sometimes appears to be, when I walk over and, and I see the IBD clinic, it looks like, uh, a war zone at times. There's so many patients going in and out. So tell us a bit more about this uh, IBD service. Oh, hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this podcast today. Yeah, uh, I'm Weber Chen. Uh, from, I'm a senior consultant uh, with the Singapore General Hospital Department of Gastroenterology. And I'm the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Services in SGH. So Andrew, you are right that uh, inflammatory bowel disease is a truly Western disease. Uh, but over the past 20 years, we have seen a, a change in the incidence as well as the prevalence of IBD. So IBD is becoming more common in the Asian countries. And uh, fortunately, uh, Singapore John Hospital is the biggest uh, IBD center in Singapore, which looks after about 50% of the IBD uh, patient load. So you, you did this right. Um, you, you do see an increasing patient load of IBD patients as seen in our, in our clinics. Right. So Weber, I think ching also mentioned about um, where you did your fellowship. Uh, where, where was that again? Where, where do you do your fellowship training for, for IBD? Oh, yes, I did my fellowship in inflammatory bowel disease in Concord Repatriation General Hospital in City under my mentor, Professor Rupert Lerm. It was about six years ago. So over there, I learned various aspects of managing patients with IBD, ranging from 
diagnosis, um, starting medications, performing endoscopic procedures, uh, including colonoscopy, uh, dilatation, chromoendoscopy, and also carried some research projects under Professor Rupert Leung. Great. So it sounds like a very fruitful time of fellowship. And what was it like living in, in Sydney? I mean, I did my own fellowship in, in Australia as well. Uh, I, was, I almost didn't want to come back. Uh, kind of regretted coming back anyways. <laughs> did you have the same thoughts as me, uh, wanting to stay there? Yeah, yeah, same feeling. Uh, over there, the people are nice, especially my mentor. He's, he's really a great uh, mentor to guide me through in terms of learning of how to manage uh, IBD patients. He also uh, taught me how to carry out a proper research because I, uh, I did join him a few clinical trials. Uh, so some of the landmark trials, for example, the Vidozumab, uh, the Kinemab, uh, were all conducted in uh, Concord Refrigeration General Hospital. And then after office hour, my mentor always uh, brought me to uh, different places of his colleagues to share with me his experience and house life in, in Sydney. <clears throat> and then during the spare time, I always spend, spend time with my family, bringing out my kids to various places in Sydney. Uh, we like driving to different suburbs over the weekend to, to explore Sydney. So we did have a very memorable time in Sydney for over the past uh, one year. Right, okay. So so what else do you do in your free time? Now that you're back in Singapore, we don't have any uh, outbacks or nice places to drive to. Right. So, so what do you do in your free time? In my free time, my, my time is all uh, dedicated to my family. So uh, bring up the kids, uh, send them to tuitions, etc. So it's quite a boring life compared to Sydney. Well, it sounds boring, but this is the Singaporean dream, folks. This is bringing up your kids, uh, fetching them from tuition centers. Uh, it's, yes, it's, exactly. It's really the Singaporean dream. Okay, so Chinghan, so what do we have today in terms of our case signet? Today we have our patient, Miss IPT, who is asking you for a second opinion on her diagnosis. She presented six months ago with PR bleeding and chronic diarrhea. She was diagnosed then with ulcerative colitis back in episode 9 when we talked about diagnosing IBD. So in a recently diagnosed IBD patient, in this case, our patient Miss IPT, can Dr. Weber tell us about um, your thought process in deciding what is the best treatment option for her? Okay, thanks, Jinghan. Uh, so in patients uh, presented with suspected uh, ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, I think the uh, first important step is to exclude infection. So stool cultures, uh, GI panel, as well as a CDF toxin assay should always be performed to rule out infective causes. And then colonoscopy is central to the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it helps to delineate the disease extent, severity of inflammation, as, and to exclude Crohn's disease, uh, infections such as CMV colitis. And then based on the clinical symptoms, disease activity and extent, I could select the most appropriate treatment for her. And so how does the disease activity actually determine your choice and how do we then determine the disease activity? Uh, yes, uh, disease severity influences treatment modality as well as the route of administration of uh, medications. So the severity of inflammation will determine whether uh, no therapy, oral therapy, intravenous or surgical treatment options is initiated. And although modifications of the original true love and wits criteria are commonly used in daily practice uh, for disease severity classification for UC, the modified male score is more frequently used in current clinical trials. 
So and and in my clinical practice, I prefer using the modified MIO score to define the disease severity of patients. So, so Weber, if I may ask you a question, um, you know, there's some cases where it's not entirely clear whether the patient has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, and how important is it to distinguish between the two? Because when we talk about management, are they broadly similar in the way we treat them or do, you, do we really have to know whether this patient has one or the other? So to, to, to differentiate between ulcerative colitis and uh, Crohn's disease has uh, clinical implication uh, because upon an endoscopy, if we see some lesions which are suggested for Crohn's disease, meaning we see skip lesions, um, the rectum is spared, uh, which make you think that this is probably a case of Crohn's disease, then we, you would like to know whether the small bowel is affected, whether the upper gastrointestinal check is affected. So in that scenario, you would like to order an MRI scan or CT scan to look at the small bowel and to consider a gastroscopy to look at the esophagus as well as the stomach. But if it is a, a case of colitis based on endoscopy, then you don't need to perform CT this scan or, or MRI scan or even gastroscopy. So that's the clinical implication. With regard to treatment options, uh, Andrew, you have truly stated that uh, the treatment options are roughly the same for both ulcerative colitis and uh, Crohn's disease. Also, there are some subtle differences in, in terms of, for example, using mesalacin uh, for the treatment. And Dr. Weber, does age or gender of the patient also play a role in determining your choices of how to treat the patient? Uh, yes, for age, yes, uh, but not for gender. So in pediatric patients, uh, the nutritional and psychological aspects require attention uh, to physician, whereas comorbidities should be considered when we treat uh, older patients uh, with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, in particular, exclusive enteral nutrition, EEN, is the use of um, polymeric or elemental formula, typically for eight to 12 weeks to induce remission in pediatric Crohn's disease. And newer biologics have uh, increasingly improved safety profiles, but further studies are needed to clarify the risk given the baseline increased risk of treatment-related complications in the elderly IBD population. So age has some implication in terms of treatment, but not for gender. I would also like to ask about genetic testing. Does genetic testing have a role in determining risk stratification and also therefore the disease management options? Uh, yes. So genetics uh, help to stratify the phenotypes of uh, IBD, uh, in particular Crohn's disease. It helps us to distinguish between ileal or colonic Crohn's disease. Uh, but despite these advances in genetic studies, uh, uh, very few variants are associated with prognosis or clinical outcomes or are ready for, uh, for uh, routine clinical use. So at the moment, genetics are being in active research, but not yet uh, in clinical use. So IBD is uh, actually a very fast-moving field, and in gastro conferences worldwide, IBD is often in the forefront, especially for drug trials. So some of the questions that we have next are to talk about some of uh, these advances. Um, I'd like to ask Dr. Weber, how has strategies changed in the last 10 years when it comes to therapeutic options? Is there a more personalized approach these days? And can you tell us more about how this looks like? Uh, yes. Over the past 10 to 20 years, uh, there are new tumor options available for treating IBD. Uh, so they are proved biological and small molecules therapies for moderately to severely active 
uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And the name of the drugs or the name of the classes of drugs include anti-TNF uh, medications, anti-integrin therapies, as well as anti-IL-1223 uh, monoclonal antibodies. There are also small molecules uh, such as JAK inhibitors and S1P modulators such as osanimate. So all these options are available to treat patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, personalized medicine is an emerging field in the treatment of Crohn's disease and represents a shift from controlling symptoms of the disease alone to preventing disability in the long run. So, so Weber, just yes. want to ask, um, uh, based on some of the conferences that I've attended, uh, there's always a uh, at least for a period of time, people were discussing about what's the best way to monitor whether your treatment is truly working. Uh, I think in the past, we've, we've gone just by the patient's symptoms. We've, we've taken like maybe the CRP, the stool calprotectin. But there's this concept of mucosal healing that it's not a new concept, but it's something that people have been talking about a lot as now, as the gold standard to, to know whether your treatment is working. Can you, can you just explain to, to the listeners what this actually means in practice? Yes, uh, mucosal healing refers to the absence of ulcers uh, in, in the colon upon endoscopy. Uh, mucosal healing or endoscopic healing has been uh, shown to reduce disease relapse, hospitalizations, uh, steroid-free remissions, as well as the surgical rates. So it's, it's considered a, a treat-to-target uh, kind of approach. And through monitoring, uh, it helps to ensure that our patients feel well as well as to ensure that uh, the mucosal inflammation has resolved because it is what ultimately leads to disease complications. So we, as uh, Andrew, as you have said, we have a variety of monitoring tools uh, such as clinical symptoms, patient report outcomes, which include the frequency of stool, whether there's uh, uh, rectal bleeding, uh, serum biomarkers, stool biomarkers such as fecal calprotectin. We also have imaging modalities as well as colonoscopy to help us uh, monitor the disease progress and whether the patients are responding to our treatment uh, available. Um, then does, does this mean that we have to uh, repeat the endoscopy for our IBD patients once treatment is completed? And if, if we do so, then how do we know when's the best time to actually uh, repeat the endoscopy? Uh, yes, uh, endoscopy is uh, is uh, a very important tool to monitor the progress of uh, treatment. Um, but we could not perform endoscopy every time when a patient comes to see our in our clinic. Uh, but unfortunately, there are no uh, recommended guidelines as how soon we should repeat a scope after the treatment initiated. But in general, we will uh, repeat an endoscopy about six months to nine months after a new treatment is initiated or we have changed the dosage and frequency of uh, medications. And then along the treatment, uh, uh, treatment course, we also like to uh, perform endoscopy to, uh, for disease uh, surveillance, uh, especially colorectal cancer surveillance. Hey, thank you for sharing with us some of the newer biologic agents uh, that are up and coming. Uh, we, we will discuss more about them shortly. So do we actually use them early or should we wait until the disease is refractory to other therapies? Uh, is there any benefit for either strategy? So there's some data to, to show that uh, long-term uh, complications as a result of inflammatory bowel disease uh, could be reduced by early treatment and uh, remission. 
So in the long-term follow-up data from a clinical trial called the CALM trial, patients with early Crohn's disease who achieve deep remission, meaning that they have achieved endoscopic remission as well as you know, histological remission, compared to those who did not, had a significantly lower risk of uh, fistulas, abscesses, hospitalization, or surgery for Crohn's disease during a medium of three years follow-up. Other studies on Crohn's disease have also demonstrated that early treatment is independently associated with improved long-term outcomes. Uh, however, the data on the impact of early therapy in ulcerative colitis are more limited, but as uh, ulcerative colitis is a progressive disease with risk of colorectal cancer, surgery, and loss of uh, colonic function. So it's reasonable also to start uh, treatment early to lower these risks. So it can be very confusing for um, non-gastro people to know the therapeutic landscape for IBD. Our episode today will focus more on the medical management side of things and not really the surgical options because there's just so much to cover. Uh, so let's talk in greater detail about some of the common medications we use for IBD. Dr. Weber did mention some of the emerging kind of treatments, uh, but let's start with oral medications first. So 5-ASA and thiopurines, um, for 5-ASA, it's, it's often confusing because there are so many different types and brands and some have different ways of delivering the medications to the gut. So can you elaborate more about this? So there are different options of uh, mesalacine available in Singapore. So with different brands, for example, Azacor, Pentasa, Salofog, uh, Misavant, we have also have different uh, formulations such as oral uh, medications, suppositories, uh, animals. But based on a Crocker meta-analysis, it did not show any differences in outcomes between different formulations of uh, mesalacine considered. And despite discussion regarding differences of colonic distribution using different mesalacine preparations, there's no significant difference in outcomes. So despite the available treatment, many patients are still in need of new options due to a non-response, a loss of response or intolerance to therapies. So take-home message is there's no differences in terms of the different uh, uh, mesalacine preparations. So, so Weber, am I right to say that the, the dose uh, is interchangeable between the different types? Because it's like when you talk about proton pump inhibitors, it's not uh, the same comparing as omeprazole and omeprazole. But if let's say we're talking about five ASAs, if, if someone comes in with with a certain dosing of a, of one brand or one type of mesalazine, and then we just change it to a different type. Do we stick to the same uh, dosing? Yeah, we will stick to the same brand, uh, same dosage uh, we could adjust. Uh, for example, if the patient comes in with a flare on uh, two gram of mesalazine daily, um, so uh, you, you could uh, top up the or increase the, the dosage of the mesalazine to four gram uh, once a day and see the response, but uh, there's no difference of changing from one form. For example, you change from Salofog to Pentasa. It doesn't work in that way, but you can increase the dosage and assess the response. So in terms of suppository and enema, since there's no major differences, then the reason why we would choose either, is it does it just boil down to patient references? Well, there's uh, with regard to topical medications, there are some differences in terms of how far the medication could reach the colon. So for suppositories, uh, you could reach uh, the rectum up to 15 cm beyond the anal verge. For uh, animals, it can reach up to the splenic fracture 
and for foams, you reach the sigmoid colon. So it depends on the extent of the disease for patients with ulcerative uh, colitis, and then you can select the appropriate uh, topical mesalacin. Okay, so Weber, so for when it comes to biological agents, uh, or we call them biologics, uh, in mm. short, um, there's so many different kinds. It's very confusing sometimes for those of us who don't use this on a day-to-day basis. But can you just help us uh, summarize what the common ones are? Avail- uh, which ones are the common ones used for uh, IBD? Okay, yeah. So biological agents are macromolecules. They are used for induction and maintenance. Uh, in the management of moderately to severely active IBD. So there are three groups of biologics. The first group belongs to NDTNF. Uh, some examples include infliximab, adalumumab, sertoluzumab, and golimumab. And they act mainly through blocking the soluble and membrane-bound TNF-alpha. For vitolizumab, it is an alpha-4, beta-7 anti-integrin agent that works by interfering with leukocyte migration to the size of GI inflammation. And the last group of biologic is uh, Bustekinumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets interleukin-1223 P40 subunits. And uh, we, we are fortunate that all the available NADNFs except Sertolizumab, Vitolizumab uh, and Bustekinumab are available in Singapore. So this... Uh, uh, helps in uh, patient management. We can offer patients different uh, options of biological therapy depending on their disease, severity, and also the patient profile. Right, so, Weber, I think we should get a prize just being able to pronounce some of these uh, medications. I, I, I mean, infliximab is probably the easiest one for me. The rest, uh, I'll just say that one or, <laughs> or, or you just say the, yeah. the, the, the brand name that's a lot easier often. Right. Um, then be- before you start patients on, on these medications, uh, there's of- often a bit of, of apprehension for those uh, physicians who are not used to using these because it's, there's always this, this uh, understanding that when you suppress the immune system, bad things happen. Uh, so what, do you, what are the, the precautions that you usually take before you, you explore using some of these in your patients? Okay. Yeah, so NDTNF therapy uh, is associated with an increased risk of opportunistic infections, uh, as well as heart failure and lymphoma over time. And the risk of TB reactivation with NDTNF is uh, very high. So we need to ensure that when we want to prescribe NDTNF for patients with moderately to severely active uh, IBD, we make sure that uh, chest X-ray is done, uh, TB quantifiorant is done before starting this therapy. Another precaution to note is the acute uh, infusion reaction, which happens in about 5 to 10% of patients, particularly with infliximab because of its chimeric design. So it is important to anticipate such reactions when we uh, start them on uh, patients uh, with uh, UC or Crohn's disease. Um, the safety profile of vitulizumab and mustakinumab is much better for multiple registration trials. So uh, I would suggest that we take more precautions when we start patients on NDTNF therapy. Some of these patients, when they are admitted into the wards, uh, some of, sometimes we get instructions to take uh, drug levels for testing. So drug monitoring has been a concept that's been around for quite a while and it's relevant for both thiopurines and biologics. Can you describe to us how this works? Yeah, sure. So the rationale of doing probiotic drug monitoring is 
based on exposure response studies that show that um, there's association between higher drug or metabolite concentrations and improve uh, treatment outcomes. Uh, so take, for example, filopirines. Uh, filopirines are products that undergo metabolism through a number of enzymatic steps, resulting in two main metabolites, uh, including the filogranins, TGN, or the methylmercaptopirine, which are implicated in adverse events. So the meta-analysis that confirmed the association between achieving a good uh, TGN concentration and therapeutic effect, with one study showing a level of uh, TGN between 230 to 260 uh, per year uh, full and, uh, and and get patients a better outcomes. So with regard to biologics, uh, there are two terms that are of interest. One is called reactive TDM and the other one is uh, proactive TDM. So reactive TDM is defined as uh, TDM performed in response to active inflammatory bowel disease, meaning patients having ongoing active inflammation based on biochemical, endoscopic, or radiological assessment, usually with symptoms after a period of um, quiet disease or having continued inflammation without achieving remission. So in that scenario, we would uh, do a reactive uh, TDM. Therefore, proactive TDM is defined as a TDM performed in patients regardless of their clinical status, uh, who are usually in a quiescent phase, periodically as part of routine clinical care. But based on the latest meta-analysis on uh, reactive TDM versus proactive TDM, routine proactive TDM to target biologic concentration to specific thresholds did not offer any clinical benefit in patients with IBD treated with uh, NDTNF, uh, but, but there's a role for reactive TDM. So nowadays, uh, we, uh, there are more uh, clinical evidence to suggest or to support the use of reactive TDM in, uh, in the clinical management of IPD patients. Thank you, Dr. Weber. In this episode, we have actually uh, covered quite a number of things. We have talked about how it's important to exclude infection before we initiate on treatment. Uh, it's important to also assess the disease severity and differentiate between UC and Crohn's. Then we touched a bit about uh, emerging therapeutics and some common drugs that we now use for IBD treatment. So just to uh, end off this episode, Dr. Weber, would you mind giving us three take-home points when dealing with IBD management? Sure. Uh, some of the take-home point is early diagnosis and early institution of treatment for patients with IBD are the cornerstones for improving patient outcomes and also maximize uh, the long-term uh, disease control. Number two, uh, risk stratifications of disease severity into mild, moderate, and severe based on clinical, demographic, and serological markers can help physicians to select the most appropriate first-line therapy to improve patient outcomes. And number three is after starting the appropriate therapy for IBD, it's important to confirm remission using objective endpoints, which is treat to target with continued control of inflammation with adjustment of therapy using uh, appropriate uh, biomarkers. And this is uh, what we call type control. Right, so really like thank Weber for coming on to our show. I think he's really provided us a, a lot of uh, useful nuggets about this um, often confusing topic of uh, management of our IBD patients. So perhaps it might not be relevant for people who are 
who don't have to deal with these patients on, on a day-to-day basis. But yet, this is becoming such a common problem these days because as, as Weber mentioned, IBD is a, a disease uh, of the West, but it's becoming more and more prevalent in, in Asian countries. And who knows, it might be as common as hepatitis B one day uh, in, in Singapore. Right. So I hope all the listeners have enjoyed the conversation and learned as much as, as we did. Um, so for the listeners, please do take a look at our website, our Padlet website, uh, that you can assess via our landing page. So if you just Google Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E, and then Guts and Glory, it should appear as one of the first sets of results. Then in this website, you can find show notes, infographics, and important reference articles that we have chosen for these topics that we are talking about. Right. So we are honored that you listeners are part of our uh, learning journey as well. So until next time, take care, everyone, and stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.